Hello, I'm Eric Newcomer. Welcome to, I guess we're still calling it Dead Cat for the time being. I have with me Max Child and James Wilsterman, who are the co-founders of Volley, but who I first got to know as sort of the older guard on the Harvard Crimson, the newspaper. Max was the president, James was Ed Chair, right? Yeah, which is yeah. our sort of a opinion page lead, I guess. Yeah. And so, I don't know, to the extent that Newcomer has a secret board of directors, you know, they're on it. <laughs> uh, Without any upside. <laughs> I know. No. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't let us me. invest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Denied from the investment opportunity. You know, if I ever like. raise, I'd give you allocation. Free copy yeah, ratings, free advice. Yeah. J- James wrote the slogan, you're seated at the cap table. Yeah. And yeah, and you were a little skeptical of that at first, but I think it's had some staying powers. I'm skeptical of everything at first, but yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so they've been super involved. Great to have you guys on. Unlike my previous co-hosts, Max and James are startup founders. And so in the biz and run a voice games company called Volley. So I'm going to have them just like give a little context on their company uh, to start off with. I've been watching it sort of in when it was in the wilderness. Like, uh, you know, as a friend, they were insisting on living in Palo Alto just for the sort of, I don't know, drudgery <laughs> of it all to prove, Menlo to Park, prove, right. oh, Menlo Park. Oh, fact check. Uh, to prove their credentials. But for this episode, we want to talk about sort of looking forward for 2023, consumer apps. And so I think useful to have a little context on their company. So Volley is, as you astutely described, a voice game company. We got started on Amazon Alexa and Google Home platforms about five years ago. We make games you can control with your voice. Uh, so a number of our most popular games are this name that tune kind of music trivia game called Song Quiz, where we play little clips of pop music and you shout out the title of the artist. We also have a number of like game show properties, including Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, The Price is Right, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, a bunch of good stuff like that, and also some storytelling. Uh, so kind of choose-your-own-adventure style interactive fiction, kind of like you know, an audio book you can control with your voice. And uh, I know Eric likes one of those games that we made uh, called Guest Sire, uh, where you're <laughs> a, medieval, yeah. a medieval knight controlling so a I, castle. I also um, see this. I've played Song Quiz, and I see the ads for it all the time on TikTok. I don't know if you're still <laughs> blasting ads. Uh, yeah, blasting. yeah, yeah, totally. So not saying much necessarily, but I think we are the preeminent voice game company. I think we have more users and more revenue than any other. And uh, in general, we kind of believe... You're going to be talking to your computers a lot more in the next five to 10 years. Revenue from users or revenue from Amazon? Revenue from users. Amazon and Google basically both run an app store model. And so we have basically a subscription in our game. So like Jeopardy, you pay a subscription to play, you know, extra questions, double Jeopardy, final Jeopardy. And the subscription is facilitated by Amazon and they take their cut and we get the money from the users. And Volley, you guys, you did YC and NFX, right? <laughs> Yeah, we did YC back in early 2018. And yeah, NFX, uh, also some of our earliest investors. So got some, well, I, I guess, just say uh, that very you sort of you're deep in the, the Silicon Valley, <laughs> both big yeah. Silicon Valley sort of circles. And you're, I, you're a light speed company. I can say that, right? This, well, you, I, yes. I feel yes. like this is the one startup in the world that I'm required to keep secrets about. So I'm like, uh, oh, but, yeah. like, what, what can we say here? What do you want to ask yeah. us? Ask us, ask us <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, what do you want to ask here? Yeah. <laughs> How many rounds have you raised? 
I don't know, four, I guess, kind of depending on how you count them, something like that. But most recently, we raised a Series B. Yeah, we're a Lightspeed portfolio company. Jeremy Liu, who's obviously very famous for Snapchat, among other things, is a, is a big investor in us. Um, and a good friend as well. And yeah, I mean, we're... He's we're off traveling the world somewhere right now. Um, he is off traveling the world. He's, <laughs> he's living the dream right now. He's taking his kids on a 15-month world tour, which is pretty awesome. But yeah, I mean, in general, we've kind of seen Silicon Valley, like you said, from the shitbox apartment in Menlo Park six, seven years ago, uh, all the way to being a Series B company. Outside of the company, I mean, I remember James was trying to convince me that uh, DAOs were like a huge thing, definitely at a time when I could have made a lot of money in that space if I were, I were an active investor. So <laughs> you, you, you could have definitely lost a lot of money at the time, <laughs> you know, if you had taken my advice as well. But um, yeah, Max and I were both pretty early in sort of seeing the emergence of crypto, I think. We personally didn't really you know, become rich off of that. Benefit but, from that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Benefit we, that from we that either. <laughs> I ran a test Ethereum node from my computer, meaning Ethereum had not launched yet, and yet did not buy any Ethereum at that time, which uh, <laughs> would have paid off pretty well. <laughs> but we did think sort of the mainstream tech journalists like yourself at the time at Bloomberg were kind of ignoring the whole crypto story. I mean, this is like 20... 13 or 2014, right? So, yeah. Um, well, or was how it? Do you feel I mean, about we've that? been burned by because there's the 2014 crash, right? All the crashes start to run together. Wasn't this post sort of that run up one? Or was yeah, this, yeah. Question. I mean, I think it was after I, that one because DAOs were after sort of the big the DAO Bitcoin hack. Run the up. DAO hack was in 2016. You're right. So, so, so I think people felt reporters and. I'm trying to yeah. move away from media, but sure. I think, you know, me, <laughs> reporters and myself felt like, oh man, I don't know. We did this whole crypto thing. Yeah. Yeah. We, Max and I, at the time that the Dow hack happened, we were just so astonished by how, you know, someone could steal $60 million um, from <laughs> right. like a digital currency a bank account. <laughs> which is now a joke. Yeah. The, there's been much worse scams and frauds. Yeah. We were fairly convinced it was like the largest heist in world history at the time. Uh, it was like Ocean's Eleven style, but no one seemed to care. <laughs> and yeah, now it's we small just potatoes. That, you could send, you could steal yeah. four billion dollars, you know. <laughs> so crypto interested voice game, lots of. I feel like you're and uh, with a board or an investor uh, who's known for his consumer investing. So th those are some of the sort of consumer credentials. I. I mean, we, the goal here is to sort of look forward and think of 2023, but I sort of want to jump straight to sort of a tough question that I think helps frame it, which is just like, I don't know, thematic investing at all. Like you guys are built, in my mind at least, on sort of Amazon, like <laughs> pumping out Alexas all over the world and being like, oh man, if they succeed in that, you know, we're going to do great. Obviously, you see it as much bigger than that. But I don't know. This sort of were investors ever interested in the audio? There was a moment where people were like, AirPods are the next platform. Or how do you, yeah. as a company, think about sort of these VC driven, like platform thematic sort of manias? I think maybe we should talk first about kind of what we were doing right before we started Bali, which was working in the chatbot world, which was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. as you remember, an insane hype cycle of its, all of its own. And we were building games for Facebook Messenger at the time that we got our first investment from NFX. 
So I think we've experienced a lot of these hype cycles. We found that, you know, voice was kind of a natural extension. Voice games was a natural extension off of our chatbot game ideas. So we've seen that whole cycle. And it's amazing to me right now that you're starting to see the chatbot whole hype cycle reemerge with AI and a lot of the same ideas kind of becoming tried again. There were there were lots of, you know, medical assistant chatbots and games and, you know, anything, tutors, right? Anything you can imagine, financial services advisors. That was all happening in 2016. And now we're just seeing it again with the emergence of, you know, LLMs. So I think it's just fascinating to think about how these go in waves. And I think Max and I specifically, you know, maybe got started in in a hype cycle, but pivoted into voice, which I don't think was as hot ever as anything <laughs> that, you know, probably you've seen. Yeah, I mean, anyone who asked me like, oh, you know, how do you feel about voice? I feel like it was super hyped back in like 2017, 2018, and now it's really cold. And I'm like, I don't know. Can you name a VC backed startup besides us in the voice space? Like, certainly not a consumer one. Like, I struggle. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there ever was a real. Wasn't voice there? Hype there was cycle. that like yeah, the Groupon guy didn't he do some like podcasting tour? He's thing he's doing like a podcast a editing thing. Yeah, oh, that, was it? But I mean, like, it pivoted to Descript. Descript, yeah, Andrew yeah, Mason, Descript, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, in general, I think like. Sometimes the ratio of news stories to actual VC investments about something is like 20 to 1. You know, sometimes VCs actually are pretty caught up in a hype cycle. You know, I think obviously Web3 in the last year or two was a real hype cycle, right? I think. And sometimes these trends are really about one company. <laughs> like people want to make it a yeah, trend, but right. it's like Clubhouse, you know, I, I, or yeah, I mean, yeah, audio, social audio, audio right? slash yeah. Yeah, social audio, AirPods is was a just Clubhouse. <laughs> I mean, there was no other uh, company in that space. Yeah. Like every well, VC got their blog post out, but there there was no other actual investment. <laughs> Something I find interesting is kind of like what kicks off the hype cycle. Is it usually companies like raising a series A or is it a consumer company that sort of reaches a breakout, you know, a user kind of download numbers or metrics on the app store? Is it something else like VCs themselves driving the hype cycle? I think, you know, there's a lot of, kind of delay to the whole thing, right? Like the people who are now investing in AI are investing in companies and founders that have been thinking about AI for two to three years or more, right? Right. And raising money at the seed and pre-seed stage for for the most part, I would say. There's sort of the insider hype cycle and then sort of the more public hype cycle delayed. And, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is, and the information I'd say we're trying to figure out what the hype, you know, the, that sort of inside benchmark, Andreessen, Sequoia, like who are they going after? But like, I guess before we make predictions, we can talk about like failed hype cycles a little bit. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I mean, Pop Shop seems in deep trouble, like talking to people around that, you know, I haven't gotten a story together, but that, this sort of, I think they're done. yeah, that seems really, really troubled. And then whatnot, I got some sensor tower data that seemed to show that they'd they're down from from a peak. So that was the category that was hot. This sort of yeah. QVC. Video shopping. For, yeah. Right. Well, I think that was a, a trend, you know, a sort of meta trend of VCs investing in things that worked in China and consumer social and thinking that that will translate to the United States. And, and in general, I'm not saying that's even wrong. I think that is actually a pretty interesting way to invest, right? Can you take the successes of giant consumer internet, sh- you know, companies in China and bring it over? And so a bunch of really successful QVCs in China 
I think the whatnot, I, I mean, I think you and I talked about whatnot, you know, 18 months ago and we're like, my take was whatnot is absolutely killing everyone else. Like right. there's a bunch of hype around the pop shops and newness and a couple other ones and whatnot is like a thousand times bigger than any of these companies. And and I think there's still like a plausible case for whatnot, but I, I think they raised their last round at like two and a half billion dollar valuation. And, you know, if you look at what they're selling, it's basically like sneakers and Pokemon cards and collectible plush toys and stuff. And and the prices I think of all I did the math plummeting. <laughs> prices are all those things are plummeting, appear super correlated with, you know, board apes and NFTs and stuff. And then secondarily, I think at a two and a half billion dollar valuation, I think with current multiples, you'd basically have to have 100% market share in like all of those markets to even sort of justify that valuation. So you have basically have to have every baseball card in America sold through whatnot, every Pokemon card, every, and then, so you got to see on upside in other markets for it to make sense. Yeah, if they have to succeed in non-collectible markets, it doesn't seem like that's working yet. There's also some questions about about, their marketplace strategy in general and are they basically having to do individual deals with these hobbyist collectible shops or are people able to actually go on and sell their own collectibles and how does that kind of contribute to their own cost structure with like maintaining inventory of collectibles that are super volatile and all these things, right? There is some question of whether they actually own stuff themselves, right? Is that what right. you're... That's right. what yeah. I'm saying, yeah. 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 Are they holding uh, inventory <laughs> and or... Just and or all the we, we interested... <laughs> we would like to know. Uh, <laughs> well, one, I think the second point is like, are the people who are selling on whatnot, are they essentially not employees per se, but effectively vertically integrated into whatnot, right? I mean, are they, right. you know, are they How part of whatnot? How incentivized are they to yeah. be selling on on whatnot, this is not unique to whatnot, just a marketplace question I think that's important to ask is, yeah, how how much is the supply side driven by the company striking lots of deals with the suppliers versus a lot of like pull from the, you know, the suppliers wanting to be on that platform? I mean, you covered obviously Uber extensively, so it's a similar type question, right? Like, are these suppliers of rides, you know, heavily incentivized? Are they employers, you know, totally. are they, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, in Uber's case, you know, they offloaded the capital risk on, yeah, anyway, I, I talked about that endlessly. I mean, yeah, there's always. That sort of opens the big question that James and I were discussing like a week ago, which is like, is marketplaces a fake trend? Like, you know, have there ever been any, <laughs> have there ever been any successful marketplaces besides eBay, Amazon, and like debatably UberX, like ever, you know, like, about I don't know. Airbnb like, is not a marketplace. Uh, Airbnb, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was, Airbnb that was, was in our, one. Yeah, yeah. But if you think yeah. of like, Airbnb know, was in our, this is a hot headline right here. I like this. Yeah, uh, yeah go, go, go forth. What, we were looking at the, you know, the A16 marketplace list. Instacart is considered one of their top marketplaces. Terrible. That company's, Keeps marking down his valuation. You know, the question is, are random people throwing up things to sell on Instacart? Obviously not. So what do those deals look like between Instacart and the grocery stores chains? You know, I I have no idea, but it's certainly not like eBay or even Amazon where there's sort of this permissionless marketplace where anyone can just put things on it. And I think that's kind of an important distinction. You guys had this sort of interest... I, you'll sometimes get frustrated with my stories where I'll write, <laughs> consumer investors are just like desperate for anything 
They'd like, you know, anything to invest in. Like there's a, you know, basically it's a career, you know, you're a consumer investor. Some of the smart ones, you know, I mean, Sarah Tavo Benchmark Chain Analysis is one of her biggest companies, not, not a consumer. But my point is there are VCs who feel like they need to invest in consumer deals, but yet it can still feel hard to raise sort of off theme or how, how sort of talk, talk through your experience with that dynamic where it can feel like there's this money chasing all these bad ideas and yet it's hard to get VCs to pay attention to what you think is a real business. I don't think there's that much consumer investing at the A and B scale for the last five to seven years. I mean, I think we're joking around about the hot deals, right? You know, Clubhouse and, you know, whatnot again, which I think is more of a real business than most, you know, a couple other random marketplaces that, you know, camping one that uh, Sarah Tavel did and, and some other, you know, some hip camp, even be real, which I think is like a historically successful consumer social app might not end up being an amazing investment. I know. I literally just, because, just pulled yeah, up like in France. It's already sort of leveling off their questions of whether it's, it's it, leveling yeah. off so in the U S too. Yeah. So the question is like, if you have maybe two, maybe three big consumer deals per year for the entire Sand Hill industry, like, you know, and you're talking the top 10, the top 20 VCs or whatever, like it is consumer investing, like a real category almost like it's, it's sort of, I think we have, have found our way or whatever, but I think in general, it's just not that hot of a space since maybe 2013, 2014. And so I think, you know, we can joke around about the big deals making sense or not, but in general, I think the sort of quote unquote, stupid money chasing bad deals, you know, which I don't necessarily ascribe to, but if you do ascribe to that, it's largely landed in B2B SaaS, crypto, you know, and a couple other things. Um, or Andreessen Horowitz. I mean, they, you know, Clubhouse, <laughs> yeah. Substack. I mean, I'm not yeah. going to make you guys yeah. shit on them, but. Uh. The thing where you have oceans of money, oceans of money chasing pretty small user bases and pretty small revenue bases is almost exclusively in B2B SaaS and crypto and a couple of crazy outlier deals in the last five, 10 years. And gaming is a whole category of its own that we're somewhat, you know, in, although we are building games on a new platform, which makes us more of a kind of consumer type investable play. Right. The thing about gaming, I think that's really important is the fact that you get revenue earlier on in your trajectory. I think the classic consumer investments like social networks haven't seemed to work since, you know, 2014, 2015, where you are just creating, you know, a massive audience that can somehow monetize down the line. And, and Be Real would be a perfect example of something like that. We haven't seen it make any revenue yet. I mean, to talk about VC in sort of the most basic terms, people want to believe either there's a new platform and invest in the platform. And if you can't invest in somebody who uses it or invest in sort of a new style business, new thesis empowered by technology. I mean, that's sort of like marketplaces and, and platform plays. And now <laughs> sort of you're saying, okay, but marketplaces, were they even really, really that great? <laughs> and and there haven't been new platforms. I mean, the iPhone is really new the platforms only new platform, are an right? amazing investable strategy. I mean, that's our, that would be our pitch for Volley is that... <laughs> If you can find the winner on the brand new platform and it actually turns into a very meaningful platform, right. that is a great investment. However, do you think, it's very do you, is voice a platform right now or you're, it'd still be a bet on? I think we talk about it as an interface on a platform, right? I don't think like I think we can all objectively say like Alexa is going to be in 200 million houses, but is not going to be the iPhone. Right. But like, do we think people are going to talk to their phones, their TVs, their smart you know, speaker devices eventually, you know, their computers, their AR, VR glasses. Like, to me, it seems clearly, yes, that 
you know, people are going to be talking to computers a lot more five years from today than they are today, right? And whether or not those computers are little hockey pucks sold by Amazon, I think you can make the case either way. But fundamentally, like, you know, how could you have an AR VR glasses experience without robust voice control, right? How how could you have an amazing smart TV experience without good voice control, right? It just seems like we're sort of long people talking to computers and and we're also long Alexa, don't get us wrong, but like the macro take is that people are going to talk to computers a lot more five years from now. The gaming piece uh, you touched on, I mean, I I honestly don't know. Like, do you have a sense of how that space is being affected by the downturn? Or, I mean, they're not investing in, like gaming investments today. I mean, I... yeah, I mean, this is so old now. I think of like people invested in Zynga and rode that. There were sort of the supercell investors who made. A, I mean, a sure. lot of the gaming style investments that I think of people being excited about in 2021 had a crypto element, right? Or what do you think of sort of gaming investors doing right now? I do think like a lot of the gaming companies. There was a lot of M and A activity, right? The biggest M and A deal of the last year was. Microsoft making an offer for Activision Blizzard, right? So I think that, you know, these giant gaming companies that are on every platform imaginable, including console and PC and mobile, are still great businesses. But maybe they're less kind of growth stock oriented. They're more kind of established businesses. The more exciting non-crypto gaming stuff, I think you have to like start to talk about ARVR or kind of metaverse like Roblox or kind of what Epic is doing and where that goes. But I do think like a lot of gaming businesses are just huge revenue businesses, maybe not growing super fast. Right. Yeah. We sort of talked through some of the challenges of consumer, <laughs> uh, but uh, you guys, you know, aren't you here to prove that journalists don't have to be so negative? Or no. <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about or not, No, we, we have no agenda here, <laughs> no, by the you, way, yeah, for the record. Pretty, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, 2023, I mean, clearly, I think, well, I won't give away my answer, but I think we would all agree. What is the hottest trend in your mind, like going into 2023 in terms of investing category? AI. Yeah. I mean, yeah. AI generation for sure, right. I think. Yeah. And yeah, what's your read on that space? Or are you optimistic? Yeah. I mean, I'm not forcing yeah, you. You want to go first, James? Here. Yeah, I know yeah. I just teed up. Jim- a- yeah. Yeah. James, you go first. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think, I mean, I'm generally pretty optimistic about any of these trends. I guess I want to differentiate kind of the investability of trends versus like whether I believe in the technology. Like I'm long crypto. I'm excited about what that could lead to. I'm long AI. I'm long, you know, I was long chatbots and I think the timing wasn't right in 2016. So I think that you can believe that these things will happen and not necessarily want to make a seed or series A investment at that moment in time. I think for AI specifically, I'm pretty excited about this upcoming year, I think a lot will kind of depend on what OpenAI releases next. I Chat think, GPT-4. Yeah, Chat GPT-4. I don't think anyone actually, any of us know what that will be like. There's a lot of like huge hype around that. So yeah, I, I could see that being a really important product in 2023, but I could also see it underwhelming. I do think that the next phase of the kind of AI thesis will be more more around chat GPT for X, essentially. I think it'll be, you know, 
ChatGPT for law, ChatGPT for medicine, ChatGPT for math tutors, ChatGPT for business, you know, finance, financial advice or, fi- you know, your, your ChatGPT and your spreadsheets, right? Everything just adding ChatGPT. So it's a very similar to a lot of trends that we've seen come before where, you know, Uber for X or, or whatever, you try to kind of take the existing technology and to apply it to anything you can possibly imagine. Right. A lot of times that just doesn't work. And it's, it's a great story if you're a founder because you don't right. have to be an expert in AI. You can be like, <laughs> well, Figma is now disruptible because we can be Figma plus plug in some generative AI tools. Or exactly. you, you hear a lot of this story of like, oh, you know, the new companies are going to be product driven and it's going to be tailoring it for, and you know, I mean, there are lots of enterprise companies that give, you know, smaller companies tools for things that they could cobble together with existing products, but are made but for, for a particular startups, use case. For startups, I think the question will be, do the existing incumbents kind of succeed, you know, better or first by just adding AI features to Right. Well, we saw the whole Jasper fight, right? Where Jasper was building off OpenAI and then suddenly ChatGPT was a big threat to them. Yeah. I think to James's point, I think like, you know, startup founders and the media, I think tend to be very like text oriented individuals. Like they like to read, they like to write. And so ChatGPT is super magical because, you know, it's the world's greatest text generator, right? And I think, but most of the sort of kind of real world applications of text are probably more like B2B oriented, like the law, like, you know, finance, like medicine, like, you know, sales, communication, like marketing, copy, that kind of thing. And I, I, yeah, I mean, to this point, I would sort of be shocked if like Facebook doesn't launch AI generated ad copy, like in the next year or something, right? Or like Google should launch AI generated ad copy for search ads like yesterday, right? Like forget like, you know, marketing copywriters should be like obliterated in the next year, essentially, right? I mean, it's not going to happen that quickly, but like they should be because you should just be able to A, B, C, D, E test your marketing copy, you know, ad infinitum and and never really write anything anymore, right? Whereas I think like on the consumer side of things, I'm a little more long, the sort of visual generation tools that kind of, you know, make beautiful pictures and drawings and art. And eventually I think 3D models and video and, and maybe games via the sort of AI generation, like, you know, we made a little hack project where you can turn a stick figure drawing into like a Monet or a Van Gogh or a Disney hmm. Pixar, you know, still, right? And I think Wait, for how, sort of... Do you have employees yeah. full-time dedicated to what would be called generative <laughs> AI-related projects? Not, not no. at present. No, okay. no, no. But in general, like, I just think that pictures resonate more with consumers than text to like distill it more for fundamentally. Like Instagram's more popular than Twitter. TikTok will probably be more eventually more popular than still pictures, right? Or videos already more popular than images, right? Like, you know, immersive imagery is always, I think, going to win with consumers. Whereas I think with B2B applications, I think text input and output is is incredibly useful. And I think we're sort of at the finish line almost on that front. I do think another thing to watch on the consumer side that we're very invested in is how this AI LLM Large language model. Yes, large language model affects smart speakers and voice interfaces. I think, you know, Alexa was invented in 2015. It's a very like mechanical interface in some ways. It's, you know, amazing for 
for the time, it was amazing at how good it was at voice recognition, but it's never been very conversational. You can't just kind of interrupt it. You can't ask a lot of follow-up questions, which we're already seeing like chat GPT blows that out of the water. So I would be surprised if kind of the voice companies don't uh, start adopting. That'll feel this. really dystopian if chat GPT. <laughs> I, I literally had somebody in my Twitter replies. I, I mean, I could tell, it, I, you know, it was some reply from an AI startup company, which also flagged it. And I replied like, GPT and he, he sent me a smiley face, but there are already people trying to deploy this shit like out in the wild as if it's a real person. I was like, what a growth hack. But is, yeah, once it, it's on speakers. I mean, isn't spam in general going to be just like a huge problem? Like, <laughs> right. like exponentially more and more sure. of a problem in the well, next year? It takes so much to- work in the world to sort through like idiots on social media as it is, right? right? You get somebody who tweets <laughs> at you and you'll be like, is this person worth listening to? Now you have to sort through, is this an actual like robot non-thinker? You know, it's, it's a real burden for the information consumer. This is why the future will be more and more similar to TikTok and all that will matter is whether you like the thing and it can figure out what to present <laughs> you next. It doesn't really, you don't want, in the future, right. I just don't think it makes sense to be sorting through anything. Like the AI will just give us the thing that we will like. Give us and the best whether stuff. it was made yeah. by a human right. or we, not, we, it doesn't really matter. We keep circling around TikTok and I wanted to flag that would our mood around consumer be much more upbeat if TikTok were an American <laughs> company because it's like, oh man, we have this huge, it was valued at like, I don't know, $460 billion at one point, just very valuable totally. company. Yeah. But we're like, oh, there have been no great consumer companies. It's like, well, there there has. Except for it, TikTok. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great I mean, point. I think TikTok is really interesting because like for those who don't know the backstory, you know, they bought Musical.ly, which was this American app for lip syncing, you know, for teenagers, right? That hadn't really gone anywhere. It sort of topped out at a few tens of millions of users, but never really reached scale. They bought it, the Chinese company ByteDance, and they mashed it up with this news AI algorithm that they had developed for a news AI app called Totia, right? And they had developed this algorithm that showed you the news feed stuff you wanted to see, uh, text, come back to text, and mashed it up with lip syncing videos. And that was a huge hit in China. But then to bring it back to the United States, they had to spend like, $5 billion on Facebook ads. Like literally they spent more money on Facebook ads and I think Snapchat ads, they were the number one customer there as well. They bought out 25% of all Facebook ads, all Facebook ads in the United States for like a meaningful period of time. And I think that growth strategy would just never be adopted by a US company or a VC-backed company, right? I mean, the idea that you're like, okay, once we reach scale, we're going to be a huge multi-hundred billion dollar company, but it's going to cost $5 billion in Facebook ads, like, you know, more than the market cap of most right. companies to pull this off. So, you know, hey, uh, you know, Sequoia Drusen, right? You want to write us this $5 billion check so we can reach this scale? Like, no effing way, right? And so it's kind of a fascinating, stri- you know, it's Wait, almost you think emerging. they spent $5 billion yeah. or you, is that just... Oh, yeah, no, they spent $5 billion on ads just in the United States. Like, you could just look at the documents from Facebook and Snapchat and stuff. Snapchat hmm. literally had to, like, admit in their SEC documents that their biggest spender was a bike dance for like two years on the whole platform. Which was basically gunning Um, for them. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Right, right. And so like what's interesting, and and to come back to gaming, actually, one thing that's interesting is gaming companies have never been shy about having to pay for their users, about having to do paid marketing, right? Whereas in America, we've always had this sort of like 
almost naivete that to build a social network, you have to get all your users for free or otherwise it's not real. Like, you know, oh no, it's only real if you get true virality and you get all your customers. Well, this is like free, the Andrew right? Chen yeah. type style stuff, right? Where people are, or is that wrong? You guys are more well, students I'm just of this saying, whole like, sort of debate I'm, I'm than just, I am. I'm saying just not being afraid to pay for your users to build a social network or to build a true consumer, like a pure consumer product is I think kind of an interesting strategy that hasn't really been adopted by any American companies, like other than gaming companies, where you're like, yeah, like I have to do marketing to succeed. Like that's just part of the way the world works. Whereas every previous American social network, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, you know, even YouTube acquired all their users for free, essentially in the early days, arguably by stealing content, but whatever. Uh, (laughs) But in general, like the idea, the Chinese idea that you can build a true social network that has massive scale on success and network effects by paying for almost all of your users and not really having true virality has not really been adopted in the United States. And I think it's sort of an interesting twist on growing consumer apps that maybe will get adopted in the United States at some point. And so we'll see, I guess. It's hard for me not to hear this. Is, and this is why we are going to spend a lot uh, on uh, <laughs> ads. Um, well, well, no, we are a gaming company, so we're not afraid and our investors right, are not afraid. Right, right. But, right. but like, it helps but when you it's can see what the payback is. Whereas if you're a social yeah. company that says, listen, exactly. trust us that we will make the pivot to monetization yeah. and trust that's, us that we will keep these users, you know. Right. That's, that's, that's a really hard. Story. I, I agree. <laughs> totally. But is there anything to be learned for TikTok in terms of new startups coming up? Or, I mean, TikTok was sort of an early force in just like, if we wield the super smart AI, we can produce sort of great things. So maybe it's a model there related to some of this generative AI, or I don't know. What do you see in terms of what people can take from TikTok's success? Or I guess you, you said one is by the audience if you think you have a good good Yeah, product. yeah. I think the one other lesson, and James alluded to this, may have more perspective on this as well. Like, I think the other insight is that personalization of content like defeats every other sort of form of content. And some like historically growing up, we all had this idea that there were like good movies and bad movies, right? And like, and, or, you know, on, on Instagram that there were like good photos and bad photos. And, and Facebook sort of started to, change the perspective to, well, like bad photos from your friends are still like almost as good as, you know, quote unquote, good Hmm. content because like they're your friends. And so therefore like a stupid photo from your friend is still funny because you know them and you have this emotional context and relationship and everything. Right. TikTok has sort of gone all the way, which is like, no, 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 no. Like, are 10 times as good as a random person. Yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) they're like, forget about your friends. They're like, as long as we have this AI sort through all the content in the universe and personalize it to what you like, you will like that more than your friends or than the good content that, you know, Hollywood or, or HBO or whatever thinks you're going to like. And, and not that, quote unquote, like good content won't exist still, but that the idea of like finding the needle in the haystack and sort of dispensing with this whole idea of friend relationships being important is very interesting that personalization of, of the whole universe of content is more important than anything else, I think could probably be adopted and, and probably paired with some of this generative AI themes we were talking no about. No more friends, no more tags. The computer needs <laughs> to figure out what you like and deliver yeah. it to you. Yeah, and then to add to that, the next step could be that we start seeing a lot more just AI-generated content that had no human involvement. I don't know how close we are to that. That really depends on these LLMs and you know, how the kind of visuals to Max's point earlier and, you know, sound and voice cloning and things like that change. 
But you could imagine a world where you don't, you're just watching videos that never existed until the algorithm decided they were needed for you. How far away are we from, I don't know, you guys aren't AI scholars, but <laughs> just like if TikTok can find the video you want and it's just like a bunch of, you know, it's a 15 second series of pixels and sound. Exactly. <laughs> when can they just like produce, you know, oh, this creator, we're going to build a whole universe of AI versions of of this creator. Yeah. I don't have an answer for you on the timing of that, but I think that's kind of where it's headed eventually. I bet under five years, probably yeah. over one year, right? I mean, I think it's the ball. It feels very close to we just sit there and watch the AI dance for us. <laughs> like, that's a lot Pretty of Pretty much. World. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, have, I have one more insight on TikTok, yeah. which I think is interesting. We'll decide if it's um, an insight. Okay. <laughs> um, James uses the word insight for everything. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll I'll trust that the when the AI can uh, deliver better insights than me, then then you you can have them on the podcast. Um, but basically, the the idea that TikTok made it sort of lot less scary in some ways, or you know, dangerous to create content. Like when I create a tweet or an Instagram post or anything. You know, all of my followers are seeing that, essentially. I don't have a lot of control of that. And what I like about TikTok is that you can just create it and your your whole social circle, your network, you know, the broader world won't see that content unless it's good, uh, according to some people. Right. Which is a really f- fascinating kind of flip on the whole If Twitter creation. only distributed to people, people who are interested in Eric's petty Twitter right. fights, exactly. it would save me a yes. lot of drama. <laughs> you know? right. It's Better, like, right. I'm like, why are you reading this? But it's like the Twitter algorithm is shoving it down their throat. Uh, because they on our last me. episode, right. you talked about this, right? How people kind of didn't have the context and suddenly were very confused by uh, your tweets. Right. Yeah. Personalization. You need you need the personalized content even from the creators you follow, right? Right. I think one final code on TikTok. I think we ha- we'd be remiss in not saying I would vastly prefer if this were an American-owned right. company, totally. and yeah. I would I hope Real succeeds. I hope if Elon decides to reboot Vine, I hope that succeeds. I hope Snapchat Softplay succeeds. I hope YouTube Shorts succeeds. I think it is sort of bad that you, that TikTok is this good compared to everything else. And so fingers crossed that well, I think Zuckerberg is probably well, I, the, uh, I, I the force bridge, he would bet I can on. bridge the conversation. Do you think Zuck should have spent the money that he spent on the metaverse building reels and that would have been better for the world? And, and I mean, that, I don't know, probably, but I, I, yes. <laughs> the, the real question I want to ask is just, you know, we, we made the point that there are a lot of app companies, sort of software consumer companies that sort of in some ways are sitting around and waiting for great hardware to build like the next great company off of. So what do you see hardware, meaningful, significant hardware coming out in 2023 that changes the consumer investing landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think we think Apple glasses are going to come out, right? And I feel like day one will be the narrative that's always the case, which is that this sucks. This is a flop. This does way less than the Meta Quest thing. Whatever. You really? Know, it's too. It's too expensive. And I mean, that's my perspective. I've never seen an Apple launch in the last twenty years where that wasn't the Insta react from the media. Maybe the media has changed. Maybe the media is cheering for Apple now. I don't know. But like, I just guarantee you're going to get a raft of stories about how this is underpowered, too expensive, and like doesn't do all the things that the Meta Quest does. Like, I just I'll put I'll put you know, I'll, I'll lay ten to one odds on that. I mean, that's a, there's a long tradition of Apple in society where there's sort of the Microsoft type people, 
who say, oh, this is why it lacks X, Y, and Z. But I don't know. In in terms of media, Darren Fireball and those people have sort of won to me. I mean, he's sort of one well, of the biggest Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, like the information, like, you know, uh, you know, whatever, the big tech. The big three. You know, <laughs> these days. The big three. Newcomer, newcomer coming in as a solid number four. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But that, that's just going to be the narrative. But I, you know, if they get it right, I think, Historically, if you look at the iPhone, you know, about two years after the iPhone launch was when all the mega hit consumer startups came out, right? It was like, you know, Uber came out in 09, Instagram came out in 09, like Snapchat came out in 10 or something. Like, you know, you need a couple, maybe 18 months to sort of percolate what the feel of the experience is before people could start building, you know, the $100 billion companies off it. So my expectation would be is if they actually launch this year that you won't really see the Apple Glasses mega companies start to nail the product until like 2025. I think an interesting question is how they will sell it, whether they will mostly sell it as a consumer product or there will be like an enterprise aspect to it, like more like a Mac Pro or something like, you know, where you use it to build video games or you use it to, you know, sculpt 3D objects for uh, designing motorcycles or something. I don't know 100% that it will be like a pure consumer product. You think that would be in lieu of the consumer product? or I, I think a lot depends on just what they're trying to target as a price point. And I just have no idea. I mean, Max might know better, but I think, yeah, like the Quest Pro, which is has Pro in the name, right? I think they've tried to thread that needle a little bit, but it's very expensive. And I think... You know, I mean, isn't and this is going to go in real Apple lore, but and you guys, you guys are sort of Apple obsessives, but wasn't Tim Cook in favor of the carrier subsidies for the iPhone, understanding that you really needed to drive price down, and Steve Jobs wasn't, and that was one of his great victories. I mean, obviously, just a key to the iPhone succeeding was that you know it was affordable in to to some set of people or. That was a huge insight. And I think like the other craziest one is that Steve Jobs was fully against the App Store for the first 18 months of the iPhone. (laughs) Like, which again, we're talking about being the greatest platform of our lifetime. Like Steve Jobs not just had to be argued into the idea of the App Store. It was like a relentless battle within Apple for 18 months, whether or not other people should be able to write apps for it. And, you know, I think Scott Forstall, who departed, was a huge proponent of it. I don't know about Tim Cook, but I assume he was in favor. And like, finally, apparently Steve Jobs was basically like, all right, like, fuck off. Like, make the app store. Like, I don't give it's, a shit anymore. It's three like, you guys have won. The, right? What, it, was, it, come, it was the first, it was the 3G, which was the second phone. So it was one year in, basically. Oh, but okay, okay. initially, they were going to, they were going to let people just write web apps for it. They, they were going to say, well, you run a little website and that's close enough to an app. And people were like, no, Steve, we have to let people write real apps for this thing. And it was just a massive battle that he finally just caved on. So that's hmm. kind of an amazing history because that arguably, you know, was the most important thing about the iPhone if you look at it in retrospect. But unless Apple has some magic trick up its sleeve, there's nothing like the carrier to subsidize you no, know, right. AR. And then if they could get away with this like corporate story, I mean, I you could just imagine this sort of dark world where it's like Apple can't figure out how to make the pricing work. You know, it's been talked about behind the scenes forever. And so then they come out with a super expensive version and maybe there are a couple companies that try to build 
pro services, but what people really want is Apple to offer something aimed at the mass market that gets a bunch yeah. of consumer adoption, right? Exactly. I mean, Apple's famous for having like five-year plans. So I'd be shocked if they're not going to launch at like $29.99 and then have a five-year plan to get to $9.99 basically or something, right? I mean, I think like you have to imagine they're seeing like, okay, 2027, we can get this to $9.99 or something. Right. I mean, you know, many, many episodes ago, I had Phil Libanon who was shitting on uh, virtual reality devices and just sort of, he has them all, you know, and they're all piled up in his closet and they're fun for you know, like 30 minutes and then, I don't know. What's sort of the view here on VR versus AR? I think that they are, the VR is still kind of a niche popular device for people who just want kind of the gaming experience. And and I think there are some fitness, you know, games sort of that are kind of more active. I think that it's a popular kind of Christmas gift. I think, you know, Quest sales are still going up. And I think that, it just hasn't penetrated into anywhere near kind of the install base that would really allow large consumer startups to sort of emerge and focus solely on VR. You know, I think, you know, Max talked about the scale of Alexa's in potentially 200 million households. Like we're not anywhere close to that with VR. So it just makes it a lot harder to build a brand new consumer startup focused on a much smaller install base. Yeah. And nothing sort of technologically that you think is on the horizon that's going to change that. Or is there anything that you would say would create an inflection point there? On for VR specifically? Yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. I My kind of a hotter take on this is that everyone's trying to do games that require you to like run around your house and kind of, yeah, like be, be more fitness oriented. And I think people just want games that you can sit and play. And nobody's <laughs> building games that you can sit and play. The VR device can't tell when you actually jump. So you're kind of having to like, you know, crouch and stand up in order huh. to like simulate jumping. I, I just think people need to focus on games where you can sit and chill <laughs> like every other form of entertainment. Designers are not necessarily in touch with the average American yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of kind of like that. I think, yeah. Give me a race car game or something that I that I don't have to stand and run around for. I mean, it's good for some people, but I think that that's kind of the design space that hasn't been explored enough. So, I mean, the crypto winner. Is this sort of a dead year coming up? Do you think for crypto? I mean, obviously, people have money they've raised and they're going to keep working. But I mean, yeah, first of all, I guess, is there anything good about a downturn for crypto in terms of development? Is there anything good about it? I mean... A lot of the original people involved in the space will always tell you that, you know, it's good when the winters happen because it kicks out all of the tourists in the industry, kind of like tamps down on the speculation aspects of crypto and allows real builders to kind of continue working. I think that's true to some degree. I definitely think this winter, this crypto winter was pretty pretty dark and cold or something. I right. don't know. It was Part of the beauty of other crypto winters <laughs> is that there were still new suckers to bring in the next time. Like, it feels like they've gone through every fucking sucker in the world. Like, I, like is there yeah. another sucker for the next round of it? I mean, I'm still, I guess, let's all just say what we actually believe about crypto at the moment. I still think there will be some great company built on blockchain and maybe even the financialization aspect 
I don't think they will lean in super heavily to the crypto brand. And I think it could, it doesn't mean that the space in general is successful. And I'm certainly not bullish on the actual currency values or what, or, what yeah, about NFTs space. in gaming? Because I think you were the one who originally sort of got me interested in the idea that, you know, NFTs could have a place in gaming. Yeah, I mean, I still think it's crazy that I like bought all these Overwatch skins and now they have nothing to do with my life. I think what would have been cool is just to see sort of different big companies recognizing the same system. But it it was almost like a big company thing to me more than, you know, people with IP needed to lean into them in a way that we didn't see. So I don't know. I still think portability of internet items would be cool, but but I don't even know if you don't need the blockchain. I mean, we could, you know, two companies could just come to an agreement that they honored each other's stuff, right? I mean, it's cooler with the blockchain because there's a truth to it and other people could voluntarily participate. I mean, I still think it's an exciting idea, but we had this moment in time where there was so much, every company had a reason to implement it because their stock could go up because they were doing the crypto thing and that it didn't work then. I don't know. I mean, part of the bull case you would hear about crypto at the time was that all this sort of getting the money up front meant that a lot of people were motivated to actually do something and that was going to get the flywheel going, right? It's almost like Max's point, you got to spend the ads ahead of, you know, everything needs something, whether it was YouTube getting content that was probably illegal early. You need some reason why people are going to use this shitty thing early and that will get you into the world where it's actually more valuable. And so for crypto, it was supposed to be everybody getting rich early and that hasn't worked. Did you read the Matt Iglesias story where he compared it to the Segway as like an amazing technology that basically has no use cases? (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I did read it. Sort of a narrow metaphor, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think his point in the article was that when he was using the early internet in comparison to crypto, the things that it was doing on it were sort of fun distractions comparable to, you know, otherwise watching HBO or reading a magazine or reading a book. And it felt very much like a valuable use of his time, even if it wasn't like, world changing in the early internet. And then in the future, he kind of projects to today and says like the same things that he he was doing are he's just doing a lot more and a lot more people are doing them on the internet in terms of like reading and writing and, you know, using it as a distraction and research tool and things. And so he thinks that you can't really project forward anything in crypto that would be valuable. I, I guess mean, when I, I interviewed of... Vinod Kosla, he was still bringing up helium. You know, it's, there are, there, sure. nobody has a good crypto use case 2.2. I don't, yeah, I think that, I think you can project forward pretty easily and say that, and, and I'm, I'm kind of borrowing part of Max's thesis on this a bit, which is that a lot of what crypto is right now is sort of regulatory arbitrage, meaning you couldn't do this type of DeFi or whatever because it was illegal. Or speculation, like where, you know, it's a new way to gamble. It's a new way to, you know, bet on things uh, that's kind of fun. I think that's perfectly accurate. I just think that that will just continue to expand. And we are going to get really interesting companies in the future that do regulatory arbitrage and do speculation on random internet assets, whether that's, you know, video game items or 
um, you know, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, anything, you know, that it, you can imagine. I think we are just scratching the surface of like what types of new speculation and gambling we can invent. <laughs> you know, I, I guess like that's kind of a, you know, but an interest. That's assuming yeah. the regulatory status quo remains. But I mean, they could have yeah. squandered this opportunity if if. It, the everybody yeah. losing their shirts means that the SEC and everybody else decides it's time. Totally. To crack I down. think the cat's out of the bag a little bit where you are going to, you know, just like Uber and Lyft, like you're kind of like stuck with this world now that we invented this and people found it interesting. So yeah, I'm definitely not saying there won't be more regulation. I just think it'll be yeah, like we, we're still going to see things in the future that, you know, are kind of similar to what we have in crypto right now, but even more kind of pushing the envelope in terms of regulatory arbitrage. Uber and Lyft won over consumers' hearts. I'm not sure crypto has, but... Generally, I think like the you say there's... I just think that A, financial use cases can still be use cases, right? I mean, if you think of like, you know, cross-border transactions that are really hard to do or keeping your money in something, you know, if you live in Argentina under hyperinflation where, you know, keeping your money in something that isn't the Argentinian peso is a real use case, right? So there's sort of those core financial use cases. And then, yeah, fundamentally, I think the other product market fits that exist today are essentially, I mean, James called it regulatory arbitrage. You might just call it like, you know, evasion of the law as a sort of a fundamental principle, right? And I think that like, you know, gambling is still somewhat illegal in the United States. I think prediction markets, which where you predict things other than just sports outcomes is, is something that James has always been really excited yeah. about. So prediction markets are at the core of our States. friend group. I, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Any more right, signs right. Yeah. of bullishness? J- just in the, you know, I don't know, we've bet on de- uh, who's going to win various well, elections. Like, I think Kalshi is, yeah, Kalshi is starting to do legal, regular, you know, legal prediction markets. I, I think fundamentally, yeah, loaning out your money and bizarre derivative securities that you probably aren't allowed to invest in in the United States, whether or not that's a good thing or not, that is a real use case. Some people want to get 20% on their money, even if they have a 40% chance of losing all of their money, right? I think that, you know, the the use cases of crypto are essentially financial regulatory evasion, right? And in some cases, that's really valuable if you're in a country that's inflating your currency to nothing, or if you're in Russia and it's essentially diamonds, you know, that you're trying to smuggle out of Russia, right? Um, it, you know, Bitcoin is the new is the new jewelry that you hide in your your suitcase, right? And so I think those are real use cases. I think the NFTs and games thing and sort of more straightforward consumer use cases, I haven't really seen too much that works outside of like speculation. In, in certain games that kind of ended up being Ponzi schemes like Axie Infinity, for example, right. right? But maybe there will be something there where there's type of games that are, you know... It's amazing how much some of this stuff we just moved on from. <laughs> to make anything not a Ponzi is very, very difficult. And, you know, a lot of like traditional game industry people kind of scoff at crypto because they are like PhDs in economics crafting the economies for these games like Robux, Robux and Robux in Roblox. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and um, I think that a lot of people have kind of, you know, tried to cut corners there, whereas you really need like extremely advanced modeling to create a token ecosystem. Well, that what a lid. Not a it's like, no, we need central banks and sort of a technocrats <laughs> yeah. and in, in yeah. exchange I mean, these, for our currency to work. Systems. Uh, I mean, I, I love it, but I'm surprised yeah. to hear from you. Well, yeah, I think I definitely believe that there is something interesting happening in that kind of gaming creative space where 
people are kind of coming together. There's like the excitement of speculating on whether the game will exist and succeed and you can kind of buy assets in advance. And then there's kind of the elements of designing an ecosystem that kind of rewards the early adopters and grows as the game grows, you know, kind but of You're like, saying it's more centrally planned while using... It's very, very yeah. centrally planned to do that well. And nobody has figured out how to do this like in a truly decentralized way. For sure. Like even Board Yacht Club, which are, you know, working on their own version of a metaverse game, you know, they tightly, tightly control the kind of evolution of the game and the evolution of their currency. They, you know, purely for legal risk reasons, they kind of created a DAO out of the ape coin that they created, right? But <laughs> the, you know, they are they are definitely in control of where this all goes and the hmm. value of the value of the yeah. assets. I mean, yeah, I think Warren Buffett has this like famous quote, free crypto, where he says, like, if you took all the gold in the world, it would be like a 70 foot cube on each side and it would like fit in like a baseball infield. Like you wouldn't make it to first base. And that would be all the gold in the world, right? 70 foot cube that fits on the baseball infield. And he says, for the value, the supposed value of that gold, you could have like eight times the entire agricultural output of the United States. Like eight <laughs> times all yeah. the farming in the United huh. States. You could buy it eight times over, right? And he's like, I'm just the kind of guy who wants the farms, not the <laughs> cube of gold, right? And I feel right. like crypto is kind of in the cube of gold phase where some people are like, I don't know, giant cube of gold is pretty cool. Like, you know, can I get my slice of the cube on. of I gold? Yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. spot on. It, and and it, yeah, it's exactly. really very, it's very similar in my mind to, you know, especially the NFT world, but to art collection, you know, baseball card collection, any type of like hobbyist collection we were talking about whatnot, you know, action figures, plush yeah. toys. Like what, why do right. people collect these things? I mean, there's, there's a mix of kind of, you know, human emotional attachment to the item. And then there's like an idea of speculation that maybe this thing will go up in value. But it's people really want, hard to untangle those I, I feel two, like but. people really want to get rich when people are getting rich. And I don't know. There is sort of a mood to... Clearly, there's there's a reason NFTs and Pokemon cards have both fallen, right? I mean, every... Yeah, sure. And it's watches. Not, like, it's and not just, sneakers, oh, like, I have less amazing. money because yeah. the stock market's down. I think it's because yeah. there's just less of a sense that everybody's getting rich and I should be doing it some way too. So I, I just think that's all going to cool off for several years. Yeah, but years. I, I, I guess I would just say that speculating on things that you kind of have a personal attachment to is, is a lifelong human yeah, use case. Yeah. Put the Pokemon yeah. cards in your basement and uh, we'll be back, you know, yeah, in exactly. 10 years, everybody right. will be playing this game again or whatever. Right. But uh, yeah. And what, showing uh, off their gold jewelry or whatever, right? I mean, still. Totally. <laughs> what's the theme we've missed? I mean, I don't know if this is interesting, but we haven't really talked about the markets for the next year or at least like the startup fundraising markets, which right. obviously is very top of mind for James and I as <laughs> potential future startup fundraisers. So that definitely is the uh, the theme that I think about the most, unfortunately or unfortunately. What's the vibe you're getting from uh, founders and people? I mean, the vibe right now is that it's colder than it has ever been. Talk about winters. It's the late stage fundraising market is like, in a freaking 100,000-year ice age right now. But, you know, the thing about, you talked about it being a mood-based, you know, market. I feel like if the stock market goes up for two straight months or, you know, Sequoia does three big deals, you know, or something, concert of those types of things, I feel like it could completely unlock again. I guess my my one hot take on this front is 
everyone seems convinced that we are either in a recession or we're just about to go into a recession or it's like so obvious the whole market's in a recession. You know, I have not really seen any macroeconomic indicators that are pointing towards a real recession that's driven by normal consumers, especially now that gas and asset prices are coming down. So I guess my hot take is like, I don't think we're really in a recession and maybe Powell will fly the plane into the ground and just keep raising rates. But if he doesn't do that, I think it could be kind of a boom year by mid-year if everyone just wakes up that like, hey, the economy is still pretty good and, and we tamed inflation. So kind of interested to see what happens. I'm against, but not because I'm betting strongly on a recession, but just because I mm. think the valuation reset and the uncertain, mm. just the multiple compression is ongoing yeah. and that just causes so much trouble. Um, I mean, Tesla was such an anchor to so many like self-driving car type, com- you know, you can just see sort of everything trickling out from there. And so if you have public companies, I mean, Snapchat is down like 81, 80 something percent <laughs> this year. Right. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I just feel like that has not, I, this isn't the word uh, startup founders want to hear, but I just don't think that's seeped through startup valuations. Um, I so I think that's going to be this, very challenging. Yeah, yeah. I think it did in the second half of last year, though. I mean, you basically saw no deals happen. It's, it fundamentally, well, everyone I mean, like, waited I, out yeah. Series C, Series D, saying, I don't want right. to help your overvalued company. Maybe I'll give a little more cash to mine, but probably not. But then they right. still invested in highly valued series seed deals in series a believing like, well, if the world comes back, I want to have ownership and we'll see, but we haven't really had the like real sort of problem of like, Oh, I couldn't raise any money. And now I agree with you. I think that next year you'll see like a lot of capitulation from the founder side. So I think that you will start to see a lot of founders going out there, raising down rounds or doing M and a and selling their company or, Uh, going out of business because they just can't raise money and they are running out of money. So I think like we haven't seen that really. We've seen the layoff phase, but we haven't seen kind of the true capitulation. Somebody suggested to me that I should try and make a list and any listeners, feel free to send your ideas of companies that are generating more money on interest from money that they've raised than from customers, you know, because, you know, there are yeah. some of these unicorns that raise, you know, a hundred million dollars. hundred million dollars. That's yeah. like four, four million dollars a year. So they have sure. fewer, uh, smaller, you know, revenues from customers yeah. than that, you, you know. No, I totally think you're right. I think to just clarify my point, like, I think multiple compression is going to be a huge issue. And I think to James's point, people are going to capitulate because they're going to want to keep the companies alive at any price, basically, right? I do, though, think that, like, if the economy is doing reasonably well in, you know, Q2, Q3 or whatever, you know, I, I think we'll start to see deals actually get done at, you know, 10x, 15x, 20x, whatever, instead of the ludicrous 100x, 200x, you know, 2020, 2021 cycle, right? And I think, like, the second half of last year, Ice Age has been, nobody has done anything other than stuff they feel like they absolutely had to do to save the companies. But I think more a lot more action will happen next year, especially if there's no recession. It'll just be at multiples that are like sane, right? Um, and so, so, I don't know. I, I still another, think that's an optimistic Another wrinkle <laughs> on this is just the uncertain supply of capital, right? I, I, I think it can't be underestimated how much IPOs were actually a big source of 
sort of startup capital, right? That is, you know, Instacart, Stripe, et cetera, could have raised a ton of money in an IPO and that would have been a big source of funding. And IPOs have basically stopped. And then IPOs are a validator of startup valuations. So as long as the IPO market is super jammed up, that's really bad for a startup world. And two, I think there's just like, has Tiger, is Tiger going to be able to raise this next fund? How big is it going to be? Like these funds that have raised, you know, billions, how much do they have? And like, how much are their LPs telling them, oh, deploy that over, you know, six years and not four? What I, I just think there's a lot, you know, it's their private markets and there's just a lot of uncertainty about how much dry powder there really is. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. But I also think like 2018 was sort of pre-Tiger or whatever, or sort of pre-insanity to some degree, at least like you weren't getting 100x revenue for SaaS companies making $2 million, right? And so I guess I believe the market can exist in a world where a SaaS company totally. making $2 million gets a $50 million valuation or whatever, right? Everybody still believes in the, you want to have ownership at basically any price of the best company. And the fact that like a Figma, yeah. a Figma deal, you know, got done and Activision and we're still seeing those like huge prices sort of into the downturn. Yeah, I think yeah. is a is a case that there's still a belief in the, you know, in the overall principles. But if if stocks turn around a little bit because there, you know, isn't a huge recession or whatever, doesn't that to your point kind of flow through a little bit at some point? I mean, like, if we have an amazing first three months and, you know, stocks are up 15, 20%, will, will that start cascading downward? Or, you know, I don't right. know. You I know mean, if stocks are up the 15, market 20%, I just, my position that I've said over and over again is there are companies that went public via SPAC. Like, Bird is not bankrupt. Like, there, there are crazy companies that have no path forward that are still alive. And until those companies are dead and people have had to be like, oh shit, that's scary. We're not close to the bottom because like that has to happen and we haven't had the emotional reaction from that. And so I keep waiting for that to happen. And, you know, this isn't .com. People believe in tech, but like .com, good companies were trading at like 1x revenue. So there's certainly plenty of room for multiples to fall way further if there's more pessimism. Yeah. And to your point, I don't think we've seen a lot of companies go out of business because they had so much runway and dry powder themselves, the companies that raised a lot of money. So I think that there's still time for that to happen. The founder VC dynamic. I mean, <laughs> it feels like, uh, well, VCs have more of the leverage again, or like, I don't know, how do you, what do you think sort of what's, what's I talking think, to founders? Th like, what do, what do you? I mean, I think VCs themselves are you know, worried about how they're looking to their LPs, right? So everyone who has capital, <laughs> I guess, has leverage because capital is not free, right? right. I think I think founders have le more leverage or just general business owners have more leverage than employees did um, or than, than they did per in the prior cycle where, you know, employees could demand really high salaries. I think, you know, employees, all, you know, we now had this whole work from home culture, I'm very interested to see how that changes um, next year if, like we're describing, like there continues to be some uh, downstream effects on startups like and, and larger companies laying off more people. If there continues to be more fallout from, you know, layoffs and uh, companies going out of business and 
Are you guys real? Everybody, you people have to come in like what three days a week, or what's sort of your? We we do two days uh, we a do week two in the office right now, and everybody has to come in, or everyone in, the uh, in person. So we have about sixty percent of our company working um, in the Bay Area, and uh, about forty percent that we've hired remotely. So kind of a hybrid system for sure. Oh yeah, you guys both are. Are you along San Francisco? I don't know. San Francisco is so frustrating sometimes, but uh, yeah. I do think I do think if you believe in network effects, it's like the greatest tech network effects city in the world by far. And I think that that's going to be really hard to break, despite what other people think. And and anytime I meet folks from other cities, if you get them like three beers deep at the bar, they're like, "Yeah, it's actually unbelievably difficult to recruit people here." <laughs> you go to Austin, you go to Miami, even you go to New York, people are like, uh, "Yeah." To be real with you, um, it's pretty hard to recruit. Uh, you know, Relative, like they think it's easier to, in yeah. San Francisco. So to, to recruit the talent that you need to run a successful startup, I think there are people here who, you know, the average engineer has a lot more experience or, you know, you can find the head of people or, you know, uh, the recruiters who know what they're doing. I just think there's so many people with a lot of experience. Um, everyone kind of... I'm actually not person. sure what you guys will say to this. Do you believe in 10Xers? Well, ten can X you define average? that a bit more? Yeah, well, yeah, I, yeah. I just feel like, you know, yeah, there was yeah. a period where Mark Zuckerberg and people would very clearly say, oh, you know, you know, a small s- segment of our engineers are doing just far more, are far more productive than the rest. And then I think there's been like, as part of, I don't know, the sort of woke politics turn or whatever, I feel like there's been a pushback against that idea and now people are being more honest again but i I don't know you don't have to weigh in but i I was just genuine it was just a genuine curiosity i would kind of turn this on its head which is i would say at a startup where sort of fundamentally you know we as a company are trying to be someday a thousand times bigger than we are today right To, to be successful right i think it's really about can you prioritize the like one or maybe two things that are likely to have a massive upside impact for the company. And I think that kind of applies across all roles. And so it's not like, you know, you're a better, you know, engineer or data science or finance person or co-founders like us or business development or whatever, anything. It's like, as you get farther in your career, are you 10 to 100 times better at like picking the most important thing to work on at that exact moment? <laughs> do they do and tasks then, that are actually useful or do they just bug Yeah, well, it's not just useful, but like, do you collect a sort of basket of upside options that where one of the 10 will pay off 100x or something, right? And I think that that is sort of like a real skill um, in a lot of different roles. And so it's not like you're in front of the you know, the computer typing away like Mark Zuckerberg in the social (laughs) network while drinking shots, right? It's more like you look at your list of eight things you could be working on and you like work on the two that might have like a huge payoff. And and that's sort of training your own neural network as to what those two are, I think is what all of us are trying to get better at, right? And so I guess I I believe it. And in that sense, like I'd like to think James and I are 10x better than our jobs than we were five years ago, God willing, if we're not, we're in trouble. Like, and so... It, it's that, I think, ruthless prioritization and, and understanding of upside that I think exists across all roles. So in that sense, I guess I would say yes. Yeah, upside and kind of the risk profile. There are a lot of things that we can work on that have a, you know, only a 20% or a 10% chance of succeeding at Volley, but 
we do them anyway because they you know have this outsized upside. So we're willing to work on things that might not work out if they are, you know, could be a gigantic success for the business. And we want all of our employees to be kind of thinking a little bit mathematically about these, you know, their work in some ways, like what is worth working on. It's not just what's right in front of you that will work. It's it's kind of what has that payoff that makes sense for the risk you're taking. Yeah. At Newcomer, you can write posts that drive 10x more subscribers than others, right? And hopefully over two send, years, send me all the better. investor decks that you get your hands on, please, for for my for my family. Um, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I was just saying you are hopefully getting better at picking the 10x posts, right, or right. the 100x posts, right? And like, you have to believe, I think, that you're better at that than you were two years ago. And that two years from now, it's not like you're working 10 times harder there, right? Like to write that post that goes viral. Part of it is like, what's the return on investment for any amount of work? You right. know, like yes. people give me lots of great story ideas. And sometimes I can seem lazy being like, that's really hard. But what I'm really saying is like, that's a lot of work to like get a list of, you know, a bazillion things that at best would be like a pretty good post. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to do a lot of work, it needs to, you know, have the upside sort of matching that. And so, yeah, especially when you're sort of, you know, creating your own product or whatever, you really have to be smart about time allocation. Well, I don't know if you remember, but when you came to visit our office um, over the summer and you kind of had a comment that was kind of a throwaway thing like, oh, you got a lot of like stuff in here. Like there's tables and laptops and plants and (laughs) kind of like you guys have to like you think of it I think journalists and VCs to a large extent think of the business as the product, the idea, the founders, the amount of capital. And like, it's kind of a formulaic thing. But like right. we we have to deal with like, you know, where to put the lunch tables and, you know, kind of <laughs> where, like how to deal with, you know, people's emotions and things that I think it's very hard to think about as just a skill on its own. It's just like, right. yeah, it's just, can you make good decisions in the moment? Um, yeah, and I think that would be, a valuable kind of thing for more non-operators to kind of just think about, you know, most businesses and not being so formulaic, like, are they in a good market? Are they, are the founders good? You know, did they hire the right people? It's like, are they making, you know, the right decisions, you know, over and over again? Right. Cool. Well, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Blast to have you guys on. And yeah, thanks for all the support for Newcomer Along the Way. Thanks for having us and uh, congrats. Subscribe to Newcomer, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.